the, these classes have involved our talking about singing together and praying together and observing the Lord's Supper together. We are not in any way uh, minimizing private worship. We, we recognize the importance of it and the value of it and how it ought to be much a part of our daily lives, private worship. What we are doing, though, is emphasizing public worship and what we do as a church when we meet together on the Lord's Day. Today we're going to look at how we give together. And, and just like the first three avenues of worship that we've talked about, we, we do this as individuals, but we also do it as a group. You, you think about what we've already studied. We sing individually, but we sing with others as a group. We pray individually, that is, at least we're following one leading us in prayer. We're praying with that person, but we're also praying with others as well. When we take the Lord's Supper, we individually take it, and yet we're taking it as a group of Christians encouraging each other in the partaking of it. When we give, we give as individuals, but we also give as a group, a collective now, you should have before you an outline. If you don't, that's okay. What I'm going to say this morning will expand some beyond that outline, but I can guarantee you we're going to cover what's on it. And there may be some things that we need to add as we go along. But let's start with the fact, though, that we have a number of examples of giving that teach us a lot about giving about what it means to give, about uh, what motivates giving. We, we see a lot of great examples. And I didn't put it on the outline, but I certainly should have, is that the starting place of all giving ought to be God the Father, isn't it? Of all the givers, he's the greatest and most generous of givers. James 1.17 informs us like this. Every good gift, notice, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Anyone who is not prejudiced against the idea of God should recognize that because we see it all around us, don't we? We see those gifts. We daily uh, benefit from those gifts. But... But, but not only do we see physical things around us, the greatest gift of all, of course, is Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And th there's an interesting statement in Romans. I want you to turn to Romans 8 for just a moment, the 8th chapter of Romans. And I want you to look, if you will, at verse 32. Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul, this is, this is one of the greatest of all chapters of the Bible, isn't it? That wonderful chapter that begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then Paul goes through all of that uh, testimony of how God has blessed us. And when, 
when you get to verse 32, listen to this argument. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. That's a gift. Delivered him up. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In, in, in logic, this is called, and I'm going to give you the, the Latin term because I probably couldn't say it right. But, but this is called arguing from the greater to the lesser. And what it means is that if the greater is true, the lesser must be true. And that's exactly what Paul says. If God gave us the greatest of all gifts, Jesus, how could anyone imagine that he wouldn't also freely give us all other things we need? You see, it wouldn't make any sense to argue, well, I don't know if God's going to give us anything because what's he given us so far? Well, how about his son? And, and so Paul makes that argument, and we need to believe that verse 32 is correct. Will, how shall he not with them also freely, notice, freely give us all things? Giving to us on God's part, it's based on love. That's what John 3.16 said. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if our giving back to him in the contribution is not out of love, then it is not like God's love. It's unlike it. Remember that statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. He says, and though I bestow, listen, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? I give everything I have to feed the poor. But notice, and if I and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, profits nothing. You, you could put everything you own in the contribution plate this morning. You could say, I'll die for God. But if it's not out of love, not like God's gift. And it is not profitable at all. Okay. So here we lock down on one great important truth. Attitude matters in giving. Attitude matters. We think of not only of God, but of the Son, Christ, and His example of giving. We could spend a lot of time doing that. We won't. But you think of what Jesus gave up to give to us. Philippians 2 did not count the, equality, the being on equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. Look what he gave up, the glories of heaven, the fellowship of the Father and of the Spirit, to come to earth. Why? Because he loved us. Because he wanted to give us hope for eternal redemption. The Bible also shows a number of examples, human examples, of Old Testament giving. Uh, we start there first with the Old Testament, I think. You know, the law of Moses specified 
a number of instructions that call for tithes and offerings and sacrifices from the Jews. The law of Moses was clear about that. And, and, and note, if you will, that during that time of the Old Covenant, giving was regulated, seriously regulated by what was to be given and how much was to be given. And incidentally, it is a mistake for us to say, I, I know what we mean when we say it, but it's a mistake to say Jews gave 10% of their income. They did not. They gave more than that. 10% did not include the offerings and the sacrifices that they were to make annually and for special needs. And so it was regulated and, and it was significant Um, that giving over a period of time was used for a number of worthwhile things. The construction of the tabernacle, we read back in Exodus 35 and 36, all that was given to, to make the tabernacle. Remember, uh, remember what Moses was told about the giving? People have given too much. <laughs> Incidentally, that's never been repeated again, I don't think. I've never heard an elder get up and say from the pulpit, look, folks, we've got to slow down on the giving. <laughs> we just don't know what to do with everything that's been given. Anyway, that was the tabernacle. Jews gave that. And, and isn't that wonderful that they gave so much? They, they had to give to support the work of the Levites. And uh, in Numbers 18, they, they gave to rebuild the temple in Ezra 1. When we come to the time that the church began and was established in the first century, we find that those who made up the church, that is Christians, were the ones who supported the work of the church through their giving. Uh, one of the wonderful things about Christian giving is that it is not so complex. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way to what the Jews had in the Old Testament. I'm just saying it's really pretty simple, isn't it? It involved a weekly collection taken on the Lord's Day as they gathered together. They were coming together. They were going to be together to sing and to pray and to observe the Lord's Supper. And as they were coming together, it was an appropriate time for them to give. I want you to look, and we're going to be spending some time in Paul's writings in a little while, but look at 1 Corinthians 16. If you are a member of the church for a long time, you have heard 1 Corinthians 16 multiple, multiple times. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay, by, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. We're going to get to the specifics in just a little bit, but we need to recognize that there was only one way 
that the church was supported in the first century. Now, I want you to understand this. I've tried to explain in other lessons. Brethren, I'm not trying to be mean or ugly in, in what I'm saying, but okay, we got to talk about the truth, don't we? No garage sales, barbecue dinners, car washes, or bingo games were a part of the early church's financing its work. And there are at least three faults in religious groups that do that kind of thing today. At least three faults I see. And the most important one is they have no biblical authority for it. We do have biblical authority for a collection on the first day of the week. We don't have any biblical authority for a barbecue dinner. But here are the other two faults. And I consider them serious. I don't know whether you would or not. It is asking people outside of their fellowship to support their work, isn't it? When a, when a church in our community has a barbecue dinner, do they say, this is just for our members? Come and, okay, outside the church, you help support us. But the other thing is, is this really just selling? You, you look at the three things I mentioned. Garage sales, barbecue dinners, car washes, bingo games. People are told, if you will give us something, we'll give you something. You pay for a dinner, we'll give you a dinner. Uh, you pay for a car wash, we'll wash your car. Why not just open up a retail store in the mall? Biblical Examples are only of the church as the church contributing. Every once in a while, when we're doing something, if we're having a special collection for a mission project or something on the Lord's Day, or even when we're just doing a regular contribution, sometimes people get up will say, we don't expect non-members to contribute. And we don't, because this is our work. And if God's people don't support his work, then who should? Now, in regard to our public giving, there are at least three questions. These are on the outline that we should ask ourselves. And we need to answer these questions. When are we to give? Well, we've already looked at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. But I want you to go back there again. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. Incidentally, and let's go ahead and talk about this for just a moment. There are a few people who have tried to insist that when Paul used this example of the Corinthians taking a collection for the saints, that, that that's all we ought to do is just take a benevolent collection. What they don't explain is if that was the only kind of giving that was done on the Lord's Day, what happened when that special collection to help those saints uh, in Judea who were suffering, and incidentally, not all of the saints in Jerusalem and the Judean area were suffering, the poor among you, those who are suffering among you, but but they don't answer the question, okay, then how does the church sustain its work? 
if, if our collection should only be used for benevolent purposes, then we can't have a meeting place, can we? How, how could we have one? How could we have those who work full-time for the Lord? How could we support missionaries? And so I think it's understandable that even though Paul in this specific case talks about collecting for the saints, he's not saying, and that's all you can give for. So notice that he says, concerning the collection for the saints, notice, as I have given orders, not suggestions, orders, commands, to the churches of Galatia. This was not a singular congregation being told this is what you should do. He's saying you need to do what I told them to do. And if he told them to do it and them to do it, he tells us to do it. Now, okay. So we know that Christians were together in an assembly on the first day of the week. We've talked about Acts 20 and verse 7 several times. They gave their money then. Now, let, let me say this, because this is also very important. We understand the importance of taking collection to support the work of the church, whether it's benevolent work, whether it is mission work, whether it is our local work. We understand the importance of that. This in no way says that you as an individual cannot give to help others independently of the collection. In other words, it does not say that uh, you couldn't help someone at any time. And, and, and we see, of course, numerous biblical examples of that. The, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we would not say of, of the Good Samaritan had he been in the church, he wouldn't have helped that man because he would have just put all his money in the collection on Sunday and wouldn't have helped him. Of course we can do that, and, and we should, as we have opportunity to do good to all men, we try to do it. Okay, who are the givers? Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you let each one of you lay something aside, each one of you. It is not the responsibility of a few to finance the church. It's our responsibility collectively. And obviously, and we're going to talk about prosperity in just a little bit, but obviously uh, we are in different circumstances. Uh, there, some have more prosperity than others. Some have less. But if you have any prosperity, your part in the Lord's work is that you give. Now, let me, let me go back. And, and again, these are minor points. I understand that. But they're points that have bothered people. Um, let each one of you. I have known couples, and, and I, I think it's fine, who feel like they should both put money into the plate. You know, because it says each one of you. I, I think we recognize that when Janice and I put in one check, we're both giving. That's our money, but we're both giving. And the same way for many other married couples. If you want to put in two checks, if you have two different incomes, you want to do that, that's okay. But but I wouldn't feel that that it's 
in any way wrong for a couple to put in one check. It just isn't. Uh, obviously, giving comes from income, and those who have income could, should give. I, I think this is one of the lessons we need to really emphasize to our young people. Uh, if you've got a part-time job, you've got income. And don't say, I'm saving for college or, you know, I'm not, I'm not making very much. If you've got income, you ought to give something. Because that's what God wants you to do, to share what your prosperity is. Now, we're going to talk a little bit later more about as we may prosper. But we've known a few who think that you have to have a lot of prosperity uh, before you give. The only problem with that is that every person who thinks that decides how much prosperity is enough. You know, I don't have much. Uh, I'm going to get back to that a little bit. And and uh, we need to be careful not to think that it's the responsibility of others and not ours. Your, your part may not be big. It doesn't have to be big in order to please God. Now, we need to be careful also. Here's another thing that I've noticed over the years. Not to forget all our sources of income. If our prosperity is what drives our giving, then it ought to be all our prosperity. If if a person just says, well, I'm only giving from my weekly paycheck, but boy, I got this tremendous bonus coming in, or I've had a landfall of money of some type, but I don't have to give out of that because... It just means my weekly income. It just says prosperity. The the third idea is how we're to give, and that's also explained to us. And we we really credit the inspired writings of Paul for much of our information on this because he dealt with it. And, and, And we have such wonderful examples. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8 for just a moment, 2 Corinthians 8, And incidentally, you could spend weeks talking about uh, giving and all of the great uh, teaching on giving. I think a lot of people do not realize how much is uh, explained and taught and encouraged in the New Testament about giving. Uh, We treat it sort of as a minor subject. Incidentally, let me me say this. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, okay? I worked with a very fine preacher when I was younger who was so biblically sound and so smart. But but every year close to budget time, he would get up and he would say, well, I need to say something about giving. I'm sorry I have to do it. I made up my mind. I will never say I'm sorry that I need to talk to you about giving. God wants it to be talked about. We don't apologize for it. And and, and those who say, (laughs) I knew somebody once that was so inconsistent in his church attendance that about the only time he ever showed up was the week that the preacher spoke about giving, which was about once a year. And, And he came out and he said, that's all I ever hear at that church is about giving. 
Well, he just heard it once a year because he didn't come the rest of the time. But we do not apologize for that, friends, because it's very important that we understand what God wants us to do. And if we're not doing it right, then we ought to be concerned. Now, the example in Romans, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, of course, is the great Macedonian example. And, and Paul holds up these brethren. And incidentally, isn't it wonderful that Paul uses these Macedonian brethren as an encouragement for the Corinthians to be givers? Let me tell you about the Macedonians, and that's going to encourage you. Look, look at verse 2. Well, let me go back to verse 1. Moreover, brethren. We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep, do you notice this? Their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear them, uh, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Go down to verse 12 for just a moment. For if there is first a willing mind, it is, accepting, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Okay, first of all, giving comes from a willing heart. These Macedonians were willing to give. And duty giving is never going to bring real happiness to the giver. If I give because I have to give, it's no more than an obligation. Uh, and, and that's really not what God wants. Look at this same 2 Corinthian letters. Look at chapter 9 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's what God wants. wants us to give it cheerfully, willingly, happily, joyfully. Paul also would have us, I think, understand that a, a willing heart is found in one who would recognize how good God is to us and then responds to that goodness. If God is good, he is, then I want to respond to that. That's why I want to give, and I want to give willingly. Paul also writes in that very same verse, if you'll notice, chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, as he purposes in his heart. To, to purpose means that you think it out, that you plan it, that you determine what you're going to do. Spur-of-the-moment giving demonstrates a careless approach. If, if you just dig in your pocket and pull out whatever is there, that's not really thoughtful giving. That's not purpose giving. Now, we could talk, and we don't need to do it, and I'll, I'll get 
more to this a little bit later. We can talk about how long the Corinthians had purposed that they would make this contribution that Paul's talking about. It's a long time. The, the, the matter of how much we give is often the most difficult decision, I think, that Christians make. How much. We understand how we're to give and the attitude we're supposed to have, but how much is the thing that sometimes becomes difficult. And, and that's partly because of the fact that, unlike the Old Testament, no specific percentage is required. Uh, churches that talk about people giving their tithes are really talking about an Old Testament principle. Uh, the New Testament does not specify 10% or any other percent. And, and in truth, uh, that is good because freedom from a fixed amount allows us the opportunity to be generous and to grow and to find ourselves maturing in giving. We're not stuck. We, we don't have this floor that we just stay at all the time. We, we try to grow. For instance, go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and look at verse 7. As you abound in everything. Now notice, please. You're abounding, hopefully, in everything. Faith, speech, knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us. See that you abound in this grace also. What grace? He's been talking about giving. The grace of giving. See that you abound in it. That's what we ought to be trying to do is abounding. Now, while it gives us the opportunity to grow and to be more generous as time goes on, it can also mean that since we determine our giving, we can be stingy. We can be haphazard in our giving. We can settle in on a fixed amount. And incidentally, I have known in the past, I don't know it now, but I've known in the past that there are people who get stuck on certain levels and they never change. I don't know if their income never changes, but they get stuck on certain levels. And that's in churches that have uh, published uh, and we don't do this, and I'm glad we don't. But there are churches that publish the amounts that are given, not the names, of course, but the amounts. It's kind of interesting that there are certain amounts that recur over and over again. You say, is everybody making the same thing there? Or do we just perhaps get stuck and never adjust? But there's one other thing, too, folks, not just growing. How about sacrificing sometimes? Would it be good for us to actually sacrifice something? Let me say this. We do not give to meet the budget. Budget's important. And we do ours the right way. I'm not getting into that because it's not part of this today, but you'll be hearing about it very soon. But I do know this. We do it the right way, but our giving is not to meet the budget. Our giving is to respond to God's goodness. 
and to recognize that what we give is his. We want to give to God. Now, there's so much more that I could say about giving. I, I think it's unfortunate that we only talk about it near budget time. Because obviously giving is a year-long practice. But sometimes our focus is on let's just talk about it right before we set the budget and then people can do something about their giving. But it really is a subject that is worthwhile any time of the year. And maybe we need to say more. And let me tell you why that's true. Because you and I live in a very prosperous time. And we are very prosperous people. Now, you may think you're not. But when you compare our standard of living and what you have to live with compared to what people in other parts of the world have to live with, we are prosperous. We truly are. Now, Jesus talked about some very important things. Let me, let me just share this with you for a little bit, okay? Jesus talked about where we ought to lay up our treasures, right? Don't lay them up on earth. Lay them up in heaven, Matthew 6. And, and then in that same chapter, verse 24, Jesus would show that some would try to serve both God and mammon and that that is impossible. You can't serve two masters. You either serve God or mammon. Jesus taught us that we can't outgive God. Look for a moment at Luke 6, 38, if you will, please. Luke 6, 38. Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You may be familiar with this, but several years ago, there was a denominational preacher that was trying to exhort his congregation to be good givers, and he used this verse and he said, this is a guarantee that if you give, God will give back more to you. And... He got sued because there was a man in the congregation. He said, I gave and I didn't get more than I gave. Well, obviously, why was he giving? Why was he giving? Now, I believe the promise. You should too. But, but is what God, does God, if you give X dollars, does God have to give you X plus dollars, dollars? in order for him to give you back more than you gave? What about his blessings? Aren't they also valuable? I believe that's what Jesus is saying. But I also think that there is a truth to the fact that in general, God blesses those who are generous. And there have been many people who have uh, spoken to that truth and said, you know, I've, I, I've, I've never given more than I felt like God has not also given to me. Jesus taught that the giving that pleases God is not the amount, but the attitude that's involved. That beautiful story in Mark 12 about the widow who cast in this, those two small coins. And Jesus 
picked her and said, she's given more than all of these because all they were doing was giving from their abundance. She gave everything she had. And so it's attitude and not simply amount. Jesus taught that we need to beware of covetousness, right? He showed that riches could come between us and God. And this is where I'm going to close this in Matthew 19. You look at Matthew 19 for just a moment. And I don't want to end this on a downer, and and I'll try to say a little more about it in a second. But look at verse 23. Remember this rich man came to Jesus and wanted to follow him, and Jesus said, you need to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus didn't make everybody do that, but he knew what this man's problem was, and he didn't follow Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples in verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That ought to be a little scary and concerning. Hard for those who lock in on their own personal treasures and don't remember the God who gives so much more than we give. I I would ask you this as we close. We we sometimes pray that uh, what we give will be used to spread the gospel. I think we should pray that what we give should be used wisely. Not just in the spreading of the gospel, but wisely. Elders are faced sometimes with some really difficult decisions about where to put finances. You need to pray for their wisdom, that they put it the right places for the most effective good. Thank you for being here.